This is Michael Osterlink, and welcome to our radio, where we explore individual and social transformation through collaborative action. I'm a psychotherapist with a transpersonal and somatic specialization. I'm also a transparson social entrepreneur and head instructor at SealFit's Unbeatable Mind Academy and executive coach at Spartan 7. Today's show is brought to you by Synergy Float Center, a premier float center located in Old Town, Alexandria, in Virginia. When you take time to slow down, amazing things can happen. Take care of yourself by booking a float, sauna, or one of the other many services today. You can book online at synergyfloatcenter.com. Our guest today is Jonathan Lubecki. Hey, Jonathan, how you doing? Good, how are you? Good. Thanks for having me on. Yeah, definitely. So let me just do a little bit of background on you, and then we'll kind of jump into a conversation. Uh, Sergeant Jonathan Lubecki is a 100% disabled combat veteran who served in Iraq from 2005 to 2006. He deployed to Iraq in Balad, Iraq. Upon arrival, he was assigned as a designated marksman on overwatch detail carrying an XM-103, excuse me, 107 Barrett sniper rifle. On March 23rd, 2006, in the early hours of the morning, his life changed forever. A mortar impacted near him, briefly knocking him unconscious and unknown to him at the time, causing permanent brain damage. Upon returning home, Sergeant Lubecki started experimenting, excuse me, experiencing nightmares and flashbacks. He developed crippling PTSD, which was complicated by his head trauma. His PTSD culminated in five suicide attempts that has, should have been successful, how they were not. His first attempt was on December 25th, 2006, less than three months after returning. Sergeant Lubecki was medically re retired from the U.S. Army on December 19th, 2009. His final attempt was on November 4th, 2013. After his final suicide attempt, nothing left to lose, he enrolled in experimental treatment, which we'll discuss today. Treatment eliminated his suicidal ideation, reduced his PTSD by 50%, and his depression by 70%. Sergeant Lubecki has gone to get married after being able to connect with people. Congratulations. And he currently serves as MAPS Veterans and Government Affairs Liaison. Wow. So, Jonathan, I'm glad uh, you're unsuccessful those five times. Thank God. So, tell us a little about, you know, your career in the service, your time in Iraq, and then, like, what the experience was like getting a deep guy and, and after the fact, the PTSD. And then we can talk about the treatment. Well, one of the things I want to start with, especially since recently TBIs have been in the news uh, due to the attack on Al-Assad Air Base, um, it's good to hear that the military is treating TBIs differently now. Um, you know, it's 14 years since I was in Iraq, and back in 2005, 2006, they really weren't paying it. They were just beginning to realize the impact that TBIs would have, in part because, you know, once we started going with up-armored vehicles, people started surviving that in, for example, Vietnam would have died. And so these, these more hidden injuries like TBI started becoming more prevalent. Um, we haven't had this many TBIs in a conflict since World War I, just because of the nature of combat um, and how it's shifted over time. And it's good to see that they're treating it a lot better now. Um, when I was in, I actually finished my tour. Um, they said, oh, you have a concussion, you're fine. Just take a day off and, and, and you know, you're fine. Wow. Nobody, I knew there was something different, but it, I couldn't quantify it. So 
it 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 was really hard, you know, trying to explain, hey, something's not right, but not being able to explain what exactly isn't right. You know, if you break a leg, you go to the doctor and you're like, hey, my leg's bent at a 90 degree angle and that's not normal. Can you fix it? And they do. When it comes to TBI and PTSD, it gets far more complicated. Um, and so some of the stuff that happened to me, like finishing out my tour, not being medically evaluated, things like that, it's good to see that they're not happening now and that the military is taking it seriously and documenting it. Um, in part because I was diagnosed with my TBI in 2007. Okay. So probably about 10 months after I got back from Iraq. It's good to see them diagnosing it now and getting people the help they need because I may not have a TBI if I got the help I needed when it happened. Um, How are you diagnosed with a TBI? Were there certain medical tests, objective tests that you took that, that they said, oh, this is a TBI or is it subjective uh, experiences that you shared with the doctor? Like, how is that diagnosed? Um, so they, my doctor, uh, Dr. Bruce Capehart at the Durham VA, got... He, he started thinking it was originally everyone thought it was just PTSD. And then he started looking at it and based on honestly, some subjective things that I had said, it led him in the direction that I might have a TBI things like I have zero hunger reflex and I never get hungry. It's, it's bizarre. Um, and so he ended up having me tested uh, the testing. Some of it is subjective, you know, based on emotions and the short temper, things like that. Other are, are exceptionally objective. Uh, they go through and, for example, uh, they've got a list of words on, on a page. It's just words numbered from one to, I forget how many, but it's like 100, 150. And you have to go through and like the first word is it. And then every word gets harder and harder to say and pronounce. Okay. And then you go through until you miss two. Mispr mispronounced too. And then they record that number. Another one, another one of the tests is they'll show you a picture and then they'll take it away and you have to draw the picture. Okay. And these are simple diagrams of, of, of like curves and straight lines. It's not like you have to be Picasso or, or you know, Rembrandt on any of this stuff. <laughs> um, but there's a lot of objective testing. There's a lot of brain scans. Um, so my so head's been MRI. So yeah. there are brain scans that show inflammation of the brain at this point, techno technologically, they have that? Um, on mine, uh, it, it, it's really difficult for them to see on a standard MRI, but if you do like a functional MRI or a PET scan, okay. it, that's where it starts showing up really weird things in my brain. And interestingly enough, um, they did MRIs before and after the therapy I went through with MAPS too, so that oh. they could look at any structural changes there. Nice. Um, and we'll talk about that for sure. So, but uh, kind of going back a little bit. Uh, so I deployed to Iraq with the North Carolina National Guard. Um, I was also a Marine. Um, yeah, I did uh, TBI. I kind of bounced around a little bit. Sorry. Um, no, I was a Marine from 95 to 99 air crew on C-130s and C-9s. Had a blast. Traveled the world. Nothing really big happened other than I made a lot of great friends and had a lot of great memories. Um, then 9-11 happened. Uh, at the time I was working for an electric utility that had four nuclear plants. Hmm. 
So because I still had an active clearance and was involved in transportation for them, they asked me to work on uh, a project reevaluating all the security procedures after 9-11 for the new plants. So once that was complete, um, I went into the Army National Guard and then deployed in 05, came back uh, October 26, 2006. Um, I was with an artillery unit and we didn't bring any artillery pieces with us. Uh, so our job, my unit's job was really strange in that everyone seemed to have a different job. Uh, we had some guys who worked on JLAN, some guys who worked uh, gun trucks, some guys who guarded the PX, some guys who did towers. We were basically a combat arms unit, not otherwise specified, attached to a logistics task force. So anything that like involved carrying a gun, we got assigned. Um, so my unit has a lot of different stories and, and a lot of different things. It's not like we all went out together and we were always together all day and all this stuff. Like some, uh, which has been interesting in coming back because that changes the support network. Um, you know, we've got some issues where like, oh, you didn't do this when, you know, you weren't assigned to this platoon or this squad. And so I'm not going to talk to you. Just crazy stuff like that. Um, because we didn't interact really while we were there. We happened to live in the same housing area and that was about it. Um, and that fracturing unit does affect the support network when you get back. Um, while I was over there, after I got hit, people knew something was wrong and something was different. They just couldn't, like I was saying earlier, they couldn't figure out what it was. They, they I went to mental health in Iraq and they just told me, because you're in Iraq and it's a shitty situation and, you know, all this is normal. It'll all go away when you go home. Like, well, so let okay. me ask you retrospectively, what symptoms did you carry that you now know were contributed uh, uh, part of the TBI or PTSD? Um, sleep issues, memory issues, um, cognition and, and mental processing. Okay. I, I noticed, and part of the problem was, so one of the big things that showed up really early for me is an impairment in my math ability. Okay. Um, specifically like math in my head. Um, and I used to do, be really, really good at doing complex math in my head. I was a load master on C-130s. I mean, we have to load an airplane and then do the weight and balance and make sure that the center of gravity comes up within 12 inches. So. Can't have that. <laughs> yeah. And if, if you do mess it up, then a plane crashes. Yeah. So I noticed my math ability, like just I, I've got to pull out a calculator to figure out a tip now. And so when I brought that up, the response was, well, lots of people are bad at math. So one of the interesting things when you're talking about TBIs is there, there's two different standards for a TBI. One is what's known as within normal limits. And then the other is documented impairment. So, for example, within normal limits means, let's say Albert Einstein gets a head injury and his IQ drops from 170 to 102. 102 IQ is within normal limits for a human. Therefore, there is no impairment. Okay. That 
is a good baseline, but you also have to look into it further. One of the things that they had in my case that was advantageous, they had access to IQ tests and testing that was done when I was younger, before I ever military. And that's where they saw striking differences. So for example, my verbal IQ is still where it used to be, which is relatively high. My cognitive is within normal limits. But that disparity in and of itself indicates a TBI. Because most people, their, their verbal and, and, and cognitive IQ should be within a few points of each other. And if they're not, then there's something wrong, which could be a TBI, it could be a congenital defect, it could be you know, other things. But, and, and so uh, there was a lot of problems in my diagnosis and because I was high functioning in certain things, my unit didn't believe me. Mm. Um, I got accused of malingering constantly. It took me having my VA psychiatrist sit down at, with in a meeting with my chain of command, opening up my medical records and having him walk them through it. Wow. For them to actually get it. Um, now you said you know, this is 2007 or so things have yeah. changed since then. I would, have they changed enough that, that men and women who either have TBIs or suffer from PTSD will be taken at their word more likely than dismissed and called lingering? like they might've done in 2006, 2006. Yes, I, I do. I think that the, the, the leadership um, has realized that, you know, TBIs are a very real thing. Um, and they realize what needs to be done. So if somebody, you know, there's they, part of how they ended up, you know, identifying the people at Alisada is they have far better screening tools now to screen for TBI, PTSD, all these different things, um, which is good. And I do believe they take it seriously because they've learned that if you take appropriate action, you can mitigate the long-term effects of TBI. Um, you also have the, – the military has a long way to go in this, but they've come a really long way in stigma reduction. Um, TBIs – and this is where – the comments made by POTUS the other day in, about TBIs, the VFW is right. He, he needs to clarify that because as somebody who, who was told, oh, you're faking, this isn't real, all this stuff, that was also my, my chain of command. Those were the people I was with, the people I'm supposed to trust saying, you know, you're lying. Yeah. Yeah. When I know I'm not, and so that destroys that support network um, and honestly can impact, you know, suicide attempts in part because being told I was lying and that I was faking wasn't, was a factor in my suicide attempt. So I think being able to go to a chaplain or, you know, a counselor or your chain of command and saying, Hey, you remember when I got blown off that Humvee? Something's not right. And, or if you're exposed to an explosion, they immediately send you to medical to be checked out and, and, you know, tested. Now with TBIs, part of it is you can't really tell if there's going to be a TBI until the swelling goes down. So typically you've got to wait, you know, at least a couple of days, because the, the interesting thing is 
and this is stuff that we have have to do far more research on is the fact that we don't know why if you hit 10 people in the head with a baseball bat, eight will get concussions, two will just get a lump, and three will end up with permanent issues uh, related to TBI, and others will just, you know, once the concussion goes away, they're fine. We don't know why some people, you know, you can have four people in a Humvee, one gets a TBI, you know, and everybody gets a concussion, but one guy just never is never right again. And we need far more research into that. Um, so you, you, you explained some of the symptoms you had with the TBI. Can you talk a little bit about the PTSD and then, and, and then lead up to the, you know, your suicidal ideation and then eventually attempts? Sure. Um, I didn't really realize I had PTSD until after I got out of Iraq. Um, in part because PTSD is a normal reaction to trauma. It's a normal reaction to it's the body's defense mechanism to keep you alive in something like combat. So for example, you know, hypervigilance is a good thing. If you're in combat, it's really bad if you're at Kmart. Um, actually, I don't even know if Kmart still exists, but, um, point well, well taken, (laughs) but, um, you know, when you get home and you're sleeping and all of a sudden you wake up because you're getting shelled or think you are, um, you know, you're ha- you know, we, we, when you think about PTSD, we, we think of the movies and stuff where, where it's flashbacks of it's full in color video of you're back there. That only happened a couple of times for me. I had a lot more, um, auditory and olfactory flashbacks hmm. that's where you hear things or smell things that aren't there okay so for example when i had ptsd and i'd come up here to washington dc there's a lot of helicopters that fly around dc i would never know i'd ask people is that is there a helicopter sometimes they'd say yes sometimes they'd say no and that was an auditory hallucination um so i had a lot of that you know smelling cordite, um, just other weird things. The TBI and PTSD both affected my sleep. Um, Panic attacks, uh, you know, anytime I would see somebody in, for example, traditional Muslim garb, especially if they had backpacks and Mm -hmm. stuff like that, I'd immediately become fearful, try to avoid the situation. I couldn't handle big crowds. Um, you know, my life basically devolved into wake up, watch TV, get drunk, go back to sleep. So um, self-medicating. Oh yeah. yeah. Um, and honestly, one of the best things that happened to me was about three years after I got back, when I had a friend introduce me to cannabis, actually, um, cut down on the alcohol consumption considerably because in the first two months after getting home, I was drinking two bottles of vodka a day. Jesus. Every day. Yeah. Now, and, and part of this also is, and, and again, I want to preface this by saying this is not how things are now in the military. Mm-hmm. Um, but I went from getting mortared in Iraq to sitting in a bar in Raleigh, North Carolina in 36 hours. Hmm. Wow. We got on a plane in Iraq. Um, we landed in Kuwait. We switched planes. We uh, flew back through 
can't remember. Ireland, I believe. Um, we landed at Fort Bragg, had a formation. They said, go see your family, come back in an hour, we'll turn in rifles. We turned in rifles and they said, everybody go home, be back in four days for briefings. And that was it. Now for me, um, I watched everyone in my unit go to somebody, uh, parent, wife, girlfriend, sibling, somebody. My wife decided to uh, move out two weeks before I get back and move in with a lieutenant colonel. I found out when no one at the aircraft. I took a taxi to my house and it was empty. Took my dog, sold my motorcycle. My life was a country song. But uh, in, in, they don't do that anymore. Okay, wives still leave when guys deploy. But, um, I mean, Jody is a thing. So, but now they have like decompression time in Germany and all of this stuff, which is actually really fantastic. Good. Because I went home, nobody was there. I went to my job, actually, because I didn't know what to do. And I was like, I'm back. They're like, when would you get back? I was like, two hours ago. They're like, dude, go home. There's nothing there. So um, I ended up getting a hotel room because hotels don't run out of hot water <laughs> and spent probably four hours washing everything off. Um, that's both, you know, mental and physical grime. And then I got in my car and I drove to a bar called White Collar Crime in Raleigh, North Carolina. That was in 36 hours. And, you know, so I had four days by myself of nothing. And then we did briefings for about a week and a half, two weeks. And then because we're National Guard, they're like, next drills, four months from now, go have fun. Mm -hmm. And I get why they were doing it. I do. Um, I, I truly do. They wanted to get us back with our families and get us normalized as quickly as possible. But that's also something that as much as that desire to expedite that is, it has to be done in a well thought out manner so that it doesn't exacerbate the situation. Um, and, you know, so four months after I got back, he's like, I, I think we came back for drill uh, in February or March of 2007. I had already put a gun to my head twice and pulled the trigger before my first drill. And, you know, I had been working a civilian job, so I had civilian health insurance. Um, I went out and uh, I went out and uh, got a shrink and just put me on meds. And then when I got fired from the job, because I have PTSD, um, was right before we went back to drill and VA was actually there. And I talked to a lady from the OIF OEF department at the Durham VA. And all right, I really hate to do this. My wife's calling and she has been calling like four times in a row. So it's pausing. <laughs> So, you know, and, and this is something that with the National Guard in this four-month break was very detrimental because, you know, if you're with the 82nd Airborne, for example, you know, A, they're not going to just give you four months off because you got back from Iraq, but also, but they are going to take it easy and, you know, all that stuff, but you're on Fort Bragg. 
you live in a barracks, you're, you have a support network, you have, you're surrounded by soldiers. Whereas if you're in the National Guard, my unit was based out of Winston-Salem, North Carolina, which was three hours from where I lived. So, you know, yeah, Fort Bragg was close to where I lived, but I didn't know anybody there. And so I'm glad they changed it because I think some of the things that the military did, you know, made things a lot more worse than they needed to be. Um, but that's – but because I got fired and lost my health insurance because I was terrified to go to the VA. I'm like, they're not going to figure this out. But I'm glad I did because Doc Capehart, you know, one, he was a Army Reserve psychiatrist, and he deployed to Afghanistan. So, I mean, this was a guy that, you know, he's been there. It was a lot easier. And he treated me for five years. Um, did, uh, I went to, you know, weekly counseling at the vet center. I was on a lot of medications, uh, mostly, you know, SSRIs and a few other, and like Ambien for sleep and Ritalin for the head injury and a couple others. And then about, and it was working, but nothing went away. It was enough, it muted it enough that if I was having a, an okay day, I probably wouldn't try to kill myself. So let's go to your fifth failed attempt, thank goodness. And then you learned about a research protocol, experimental research protocol. How did you learn about that? And how did you get so, involved? Yeah, so my, my final attempt, um, I slipped my wrists and I was taken to the VA and uh, they put me in inpatient for about seven or eight days. Um, which that asked, and that was in Charleston, South Carolina. That was horrible because there was no therapy. There was no group therapy. It was every morning a group of doctors would come around and give you medication and that was it. Wow. And uh, the Charleston VA was kind enough to allow a junior ROTC unit from a local high school to come tour the psychiatric ward. There's all sorts of problems with that. But um, before I left, or before they'd release me, you know, they had to do a suicide plan and all these things. And they asked, okay, what can we do to make sure this doesn't happen again? I said, quit fucking with me. He said, we're going to do that. So that's off the table. Um, but I said, I need, I need weekly counseling because when I moved to Charleston, I lost that. Um, and, and I said, it's got to be every week. And I said, I want an interdisciplinary care meeting with my four doctors. Because, you know, my joint, because of the, the explosion, not only did it rattle my brain, but it also kind of shook up every joint in my body. So I have arthritis and all this other stuff. And I had a back surgery. I've had a couple of back surgeries, actually. And, and all my, four of my doctors were blaming each other for why they couldn't do anything. None of them were talking to each other, and they were prescribing medications that were counterindicated. I was on 42 pills at one point. Holy shit. A day. And part of this was I had a quarter-sized bulge in my disc in my lower spine that was pushing the ter two nerves in the spinal cord apart. And they, because of the opiate epidemic, 
They didn't want to prescribe opiates in any way. Um, so they prescribed like eight different medications that are supposed to be painkilling that aren't. And I passed out while driving one time and all that. My wife made me go to the ER because the, the medication interactions. And the ER looked at everything I was on and they're like, this is enough to tranquilize an elephant. They're like, you need to go back. So I, I wanted that meeting to put everybody in the same room so we could figure out a way forward. That actually didn't happen, but the weekly therapy did. Um, and my psychiatrist, one week, uh, there was an issue on the inpatient floor and she couldn't see me. And I will give credit to my psychiatrist when she said, we're going to get you weekly therapy. She did everything she could to make that happen. Um, and she's like, so we can either meet ne next week and just skip this week if you're okay with that. Or you can sit with my intern if you need meds and she can send it out and I can just put it in the system and have meds mailed out to you. So let's do that. So I'm sitting with an intern at the medical, from the Medical University of South Carolina. She's probably the only person in quite a few years who'd read my entire medical file because she's an intern and she has to. So she slides this piece of paper across the desk as soon as I walk in. It's folded in half and says, don't look at that until after you leave because I'm not supposed to tell you about it. Okay. Now, funny enough, she's actually legally permitted to talk about, you know, federally approved clinical research trials. It's just because it involves MDMA, she didn't think she could. Okay. So I walk outside. You know, I don't remember anything in that meeting because I was like, what the hell's written on this piece of paper? And so I open it up and it just says Google MDMA PTSD. So I did, and I found that MAPS was doing a clinical research trial in Mount Pleasant, South Carolina, down the street. So I called them up, and I said, hey, this is me. This is what's going on. Um, and I qualified for the study. So one year after my suicide attempt was the first time I did MDMA-assisted psychotherapy. So walk us through what, what the session was like. What expectations were you, you know, going into, like your set and setting, mindset, physical setting you're in, that kind of stuff? So, uh, so the setting, so one, it's an FDA clinical trial. So there's some things involved in this that once this goes out as a, as a true therapy, may or may not be part of it. So, for example, I had to wear a blood pressure cuff and my temperature was constantly monitored and all these things that are more trial type stuff um, and FDA requirements than what would be done. But I was, I was laying on, on, on a bed um, and there were two therapists, Michael and Annie, uh, on either side of me. And so, you know, I, I showed up, they hooked me up to all the stuff. We, we talked, asked any questions. We put in, you know, I gave Annie my cell phone um, and put it on do not disturb so that in case something happened with my kid, if, if there was a true emergency, you know, they'd be able to get in touch with somebody who was with me, if not me. Um, Did you meet with things them like that? Did you meet with them prior? Yes. To okay. So, so the protocol is you have three eight hour sessions, three to four weeks apart. And then you have 12 90-minute integration sessions that are spread out three before your first one and then three following each one. Good. Yeah. So and plus the informed consent and, and, all, and you know, the different tests for, to qualify for the trial and all that. 
So um, then they're like, all right, are you ready? Like, why not? Now, realize, I didn't think it was going to work. I joined the trial because I thought it'd be fun to try ecstasy for the first time in my life. Because I figured I'd be dead anyway, so why not? Um, and so it's kind of funny because they, they, they're like, here's the pill. I take it. I put it in my mouth. And I thought it was going to be like LSD instantaneous, like, and nothing happened. All right. This sucks. And I thought, okay, maybe it's like weed. It takes a couple minutes. Nope. This sucks. So then about 40 minutes goes by and it kicks in. One of the first things I say is I so get why people take this now. now um, were you wearing blindfolds? Was there music playing? Like what was, what was that kind of environment around you like? So uh, while we were waiting for it to kick in, um, no, not really. Okay. We were just kind of BSing, waiting for it to kick in. Uh, there may have been some music. Um, now, once they get into the therapy after it kicks in, okay. um, then they do play music. Um, and then when we're, t when I, me or they are talking, they'll turn the music down. Mm -hmm. Um, and so how it goes for the eight hours is, you know, you talk about some stuff and then, you know, when it's a, when Michael and Annie thought it was a good place to kind of break, um, they put eye shade, you know, they hand me out. So the first time I did eye shades and I really, those felt really weird on my face. Mm. So for the second and third one, I, I used uh, dark sunglasses that I wear. So now, um, either way works. Just did they ask leading questions, knowing, knowing your story, or did they um, talk? What was that whole experience like? Do you recall? Some of it was, was what I like to call kindergarten questions to get me started talking about, yeah. like Iraq, for example. Mm -hmm. You know, they'd be like, what was the weather like? And you just start talking mm -hmm. because – you know, you, nothing is inhibiting you. You know, the MDMA builds trust with the therapist instantly through mm -hmm. chemicals. <laughs> um, plus, Michael and Annie are truly awesome people, and I really like them to begin with, which helped. Because um, one of the big issues, especially when you're talking about, you know, mental health with veterans and military is we don't trust them because while we're in the military, there's limited confidentiality mm -hmm. with psychiatrists. And so we don't trust them. Um, and that carries over into the civilian world, especially when all we hear is how screwed up mental health is at the VA and everything else. This overcomes that. Um, as well as, you know, Michael and Annie, they were never in the military. There's a lot of vets that are like, I'm not going to talk to a therapist because they've never been there. How can they understand? And this is why, Matt, uh, you have to be specially trained to do this therapy. Um, and it's important to understand those things. Um, you know, as a psychedelic therapist. Um, but the other thing is it mutes the amygdala, which is the fear response in the brain. So you don't get panic attacks. You don't have really any kind of reaction. Um, I, I came up a long time ago. I came up with, with, with a statement to describe it. It's like doing therapy while being hugged by everyone in the world who loves you in a bathtub full of puppies licking your face. Oh, <laughs> so, uh, but yeah, it, and, it's amazing how easy it is to talk. Now, I get asked a lot about addiction and, and all these other things. You know, 
this is done in a controlled environment with two therapists and realize you're going over all the most traumatic things in your entire life. Mm -hmm. It's not like you're in a rave having fun mm -hmm. so that that enjoyment trigger for addiction isn't really there because you know, you and I both over the age of 40, we've got to go get a colonoscopy every once in a while. You know, they give you really powerful drugs to knock you out. They wouldn't let you take home, but it's okay because there's two doctors in a room. And I don't know any guy that doesn't want to get knocked out for a colonoscopy. So it, it's a very similar thing. Um, yes, these are powerful substances, but you know, I don't, I don't know anybody that's like gotten home the next day after a colonoscopy and, and is like, man, I need to go schedule another one so I can get those cool drugs. Because yeah. it's an uncomfortable experience, so you don't, it, you don't make that mental connection. So um, let me ask you, so uh, your subjective experiences while you're, these three sessions you did, or at least the first session, you know, a lot of people say that you know, MDMA isn't within the field of psychedelic medicine but it's in quality of the experience different than something like LSD or psilocybin. Uh, is that your experience as well in terms of like, you didn't have the hallucinations, the transpersonal experiences is more personal body oriented, that kind of thing. Correct. Um, so for example, like I did not see, you know, pink dragons and, and all the things you think of when you think of psychedelics, I did see when I would close my eyes, interesting, geometric patterns mm -hmm. um but i was always there and i was always me so um, you, your self-sense still retained itself during the session correct yeah. um you know and honestly and this is my opinion um well part of the problem is we haven't done anywhere near enough research on psychedelics for mental health i think mdma is particularly well suited for ptsd in particular because of how PTSD manifests itself. Um, that, that lack of trust with the world, that, that fear response on overdrive. The MDMA just like laser focused eliminates those things or mutes them so they're, they're, they're not getting in the way. Whereas I would be truly fearful for a combat vet with the level of PTSD that I had doing something like LSD. Yeah, 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 yeah. They probably could um, re-traumatize re them, depending. Exactly. Um, and that's part of, you know, I've, it's kind of funny. I took my first psychedelic five years ago as part of the clinical trial. Um, I have done ayahuasca twice as part of a religious ceremony. Um, one time it didn't work, the other time it did. Um, but it didn't work the way everybody described it to me either. Um, so... I, I can compare those two because I'm not like a lot of the other people, you know, psychonauts that, that, that pop up, you know, I didn't like say, Hey, MDMA is great. I'm going to go try all these other things. And I don't fault people for wanting to expand their mind and heal more. Um, it just wasn't me. Mm -hmm. And so, you know, I got involved in politics and worked on campaigns and, and talked to the media and I saw value in putting off that personal enjoyment to make this cause happen or at least help because you know you know we've known each other for a while 
I typically go talk to conservatives and, and Republicans on the right. And here I, I come and I'm like, hey, psychedelics, awesome. And, in, you know, it's really easy to go talk to AOC's office about psychedelics. They wouldn't care if I went and did MDMA as part of a trial and then started, you know, eating shrooms every weekend. The right does. And so it's a cool experience. I want to explore it more. That's part of the reason that, that I fight to, to bring this research about. And, and, you know, later tonight, I'm actually going to, to a decrim nature meeting here in DC to talk about decriminalizing plant-based psychedelics within the district of Columbia. Good. good. Um, so I have a, a weird rule. I will only do psychedelics in a legal manner. So, and, um, and how do you roll with conservatives? That makes complete sense. Republicans, et cetera, et cetera. And I, and I, what I would like you to do is have you back on to talk about your work with maps. What, you know, the, the latest research you guys are, are doing on the wide variety of medicines, some of the encounters you have in conversations. If you're, if you're able to share what you're learning when you have these conversations with other combat veterans, with conservative activists and leaders, Republicans, et cetera. And with, but with our time remaining, you know, one of the th one one way that MDMA is described is as an empathogen. It opens up the heart and increases empathy. It's a, it's a term that kind of died out. It's not I don't hear it very much anymore, but it's kind of popular, more popular, I would say, in the 90s, late 90s. Did you find your empathy or at least your compassion for yourself shift as a result of doing this work? Like, I do have far more empathy um, since I went through now. For me, because I've thought a lot about actually the exact question you just asked. And for me, I'm still stuck with chicken or the egg. Am I more empathetic because, you know, I was sane, then batshit crazy, and now I'm sane again, which gives me a unique perspective? Or is it something chemically changed in my brain because of the MDMA. I don't know the answer to that. Or both. I see both or both. Um, you know, I have a very different view on mental health, on mental illness, on psychedelics, on just human compassion and empathy for other people in part because, you know, I spent eight years with PTSD, eight years, almost every second of every day trying to figure out how to end my life. I've stood on a bridge thousands of times. I know what it's like to suffer. I know what it's like to hurt. I know what it's like to be in pain. And because I've been given the opportunity to heal, I understand, you know, I may not understand completely, but I can understand how somebody who is uh, transgender can have pain and all of these things. So I'm more willing to bridge that gap and have conversations and, and you know, whatever, whatever is causing somebody pain, I can then take it. And, and because I was in such a bad place for eight years, I know what it feels like. And I know what it's like to have somebody just come up and say, you know what, you're stronger than you think simply because you're still here. Um, I hope and I dream of a world that is almost devoid of trauma-based mental illness. And that's where I see this going. Yeah. Amen. From your lips. Um, again, yours. 
but I am far more empathetic, which has had an interesting experience for me because I've had two people in the past two years um, die in my arms. Um, one was a gentleman who drowned in the lake behind my house the, uh, that I tried to save. Another was a gunshot victim that I tried to save. And it, them dying bothered me greatly far more than anybody than, than like other people dying because of that empathy, because it didn't have to happen and all of that. But I also still don't have PTSD because I learned the proper way to deal with that trauma. And I had no fear of reaching out and, and saying, I need help. As a matter of fact, when uh, Tim was shot and killed, while I was waiting for the detectives to show up, because I just had to hang the hell out, um, I picked up the phone and I called Michael, one of the therapists, you know, because I, because I work for MAPS, I can just call Michael. Um, but that's not part of the protocol or anything. But, and, and I say this happened, and I did a one-hour therapy session right there. That's how quickly I dealt with that trauma. That's good. And I had issues for a few days. I had nightmares. I had flashbacks to the event. All in you know, when, Tim, when Tomas died, I was terrified that I was going to go back to the way I was before. With Tim, I knew I wouldn't, but I knew I needed to deal with it. Um, it was a really long-winded answer to talk about the empathic no, it's, it's, empathy it's, question. But. It's really important because I want people to understand um, the, the subjective effects that this medicine can have on you, not just you, but on anyone. You know, obviously it's huge that your PTSD was healed to, to a huge extent. And a lot of these other symptoms of the PTSD are, you know, minimized, which you, which we acknowledge at the very beginning of this conversation in terms of percentages and stuff. But it's also affected how you relate to other people, see other people, think and are with other people. And I think that's really important for people to understand. Um, we talked about you coming back on to uh, talk about your work for MAPS and MAPS more broadly, what the research is. Is that cool with you? Absolutely. And uh, one of the things on the next show, we can talk about uh, Zendo, because one of the things with MDMA, because of how it works, is, you know, I was fortunate, you know, I had two therapists in the room, I took the MDMA in a controlled environment. There are people taking MDMA at raves and parties and things like that. And it's, it's interesting how often somebody will go to a rave and take MDMA and then trauma starts coming up and they need to deal with it. Mm -hmm. and, and this is where one of the things that MAPS does is Zendo. Um, it goes to festivals and parties and performs that function because it's, it's been interesting to talk to people and they're like, yeah, I did MDMA and I went to a rave and then like, I, you know, I started talking to this random person next to me about how my father abused me or what have you. Um, so we can, we can, we can, yeah, we can delve more into that, but, but that's yeah. an important thing because there is a distinction between, you know, going to a rave and taking MDMA and this, I personally don't have an issue with people taking MDMA in a recreational sense, as long as it's tested for purity, um, which is a major factor, but there also needs to be these outlets so that when things come up, you know, even in recreational use, it can be dealt with. Exactly. Well, Jonathan, thank you for your time. Um, good conversation. Thank God you failed those five times. And uh, you know, you're an exemplar of what's possible. And hopefully through your efforts through MAPS, and we'll talk about this when we get together again, we can change the paradigm, the mental health paradigm.
and the way we oh, care absolutely. everyone else as well. Thanks for being on the show. Thanks for having me.